best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the known. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi, everyone. Welcome to uh, this month's installment of Beer with Blue Marble Space. I'm Jacob, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, we've got a fun show for you today. We've got Brittany Schmidt. She's going to give us a talk about her work in Antarctica, and Tyler Yohe is going to introduce us to uh, one of his favorite beverages. Um, I remind you that uh, you can check out information about our institute at our website, bmsis.org. And I will also remind you that if you are consuming alcohol, you must respect the local laws of your land. So uh, Tyler, please, uh, what beverage do you have for us in store today? All right, well, first off, thank you, Jacob, and thank you to Blue Bombo Institute for having me on again to make this, this month's introductions. Uh, before I introduce Brittany, um, let me first introduce this month's beverage, which I chose Liquid Hero Sweet Ale. It's a refreshing strawberry wheat beer that actually comes from a local microbrewery in York, PA. And it's actually great for like the approaching warm summer months, which kind of segues into my introduction of Brittany. We got this approaching heat wave of summer, and she's going to kind of cool us off a little bit with some icy talks about Europa's icy surface. And Brittany actually has an educational background that includes a bachelor's in physics and a minor in planetary astronomy from the University of Arizona. She also has a master's and PhD in geophysics and space physics with a concentration in planetary physics from UCLA. And most recently, she's actually doing her postdoctoral work with the University of Texas, focusing on Jupiter's moon Europa and using research of Earth analogs, which includes taking expeditions out to the McMurdo ice shelf in Antarctica. So with all that said, I'll let Brittany actually take the stage and tell you a little bit more about her work. But before I do, I just wanted to congratulate her as she'll, next fall she'll actually be starting as a new faculty member at Georgia Tech's Earth and Atmospheric Science Department. So with all that said, Brittany, all yours. Well, thanks so much. And uh, I'm, gl I'm glad to hear that you're uh, partaking in, in a refreshing summer beverage. I am empty-handed here. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm glad to be joining today. Thanks so much to um, to the Blue Marble folks for inviting me to chat. And um, I, I'm pretty excited about the work I've been getting to do in the last couple of years because um, looking for life in the solar system and figuring out how it works is really what got me into science. Um, kind of a I'm kind of a music buff and I'm into you know art and reading and all kinds of other things. And I think it was really that kind of integration of of kind of this artistic license that you can take with the search for life and, and then it's, you know, the rigor of science combined with those two things kind of is why I decided to get in science in the first place. I like that, you know, Blue Marble is one of the groups that's really trying to to push the envelope on, on getting people, especially young scientists, out into the community and kind of sharing that joy of exploration and understanding that, that we all get as, as scientists. So I'm excited to share with you what we've been doing for the last couple of years at Texas and what we're going to start doing as I move to over to Georgia Tech. It's kind of exciting to say that. So um, lots of new things. So the title of my presentation is, is Europa in Our Backyard. And 
The reason that I talk about Europa that way is because, well, to be perfectly honest, I'm from Arizona. So when I'm growing up, I walk outside and I see the desert, I look around me, and I see Mars every single day. <laughs> you know, you're driving through West Texas, you see Mars every single day. You're driving through most of the desert southwest and you've seen Mars every day. Um, and so it's really easy to imagine that, that you know, Mars is the place the most like Earth and very reminiscent of places that a lot of us has, have been. Uh, the flip side of that is actually when you get the chance to do some of the, the um, trips that I've gotten to do in the last few years to um, things that, you know, astrobiology has taken me to, like uh, to Iceland and now uh, to the Antarctic, uh, it's, it's a different story. When you're there, you forget, <laughs> you forget those uh, kind of Martian, that kind of Martian background and you see a new, a new side of the earth and, and it's one that reminds me of Europa. So I wanted to talk to you guys about that because I think it's really an interesting story. So first of all, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of talk about, you know, where should we go to explore and, and what should be our first goal? And I think all of these targets are really, really interesting. And I, the reason I'm so interested in Europa is actually because I think of it as being kind of the most Earth-like place that we've got. Europa is about the size of the Earth's moon. Oh, in orbit, it's actually the second, uh, second interior most major moon of Jupiter. And so it's kind of in this really interesting environment where it's getting energy from tides that kind of keeps the interior warmed up and, uh, and allows the planet to actually be active. And so we've seen these, these you know, enticing pictures of Europa, the Voyager spacecraft, from the Galileo spacecraft, but even before then, we knew that its surface was made out of ice. We could see that from the, from ground-based astronomy that um, this bright white, you know, cue ball-like surface from the distance covered in ice. And so, for a long time, we've wondered what was underneath there. And as spacecraft go out and explore Europa, we learned more and more about about this amazing place. And so. In that respect, we've got a place that is covered in ice, but that's that's a, a phase that actually our own planet went through several times in its history. A snowball Earth phase, you know, a phase where the, most of the Earth was covered in ice as well. Um, and when you go to the, uh, the Antarctic today, there's still an environment where the land is covered in ice, but so is part of the ocean, um, even in permanent ice cover. Most of what you've probably heard about, especially as you think about climates and climate change, global warming, things like that, are is sea ice kind of an annual phenomenon or a multi-annual phenomenon. So it's, it's ice that grows out of the ocean every year when, it, when the air gets cold but the ocean is staying warm. And so you get these thick plates of ice, but they tend to go away every year. In Antarctica, what we still have are state and continent-sized chunks of ice that are permanent ice cover, hundreds of meters, and in some cases, kilometers thick. It's very, very relevant to Europa. So Europa, as I mentioned, is is kind of about the size of our Earth's moon, but uh, that ice shell is only about, oh, probably between 15 and 30 kilometers thick, which is quite a lot of ice. On Earth, the thickest ice is about five kilometers, but below that is a global ocean, an ocean very much like our own, with a salinity that we think is not too much different. And so that water is actually interacting with the, with the silicate interior of Europa and with the ice shelves, or with the ice shell on Europa, the same way that the ocean on the Earth is interacting with the seafloor on the Earth and with ice and with continents and things like that. So we've got very Earth-like elements. Liquid water right now, the same temperature as our ocean, the same basic salinity or very similar salinity to our ocean. So the question naturally is, okay, we seem like we've got these in ingredients. Well, 
Is that enough to support life? And in the case of Europa, what we also have is a source of energy. As I mentioned, it's in close to Jupiter, and Jupiter is this big, massive planet, and it pulls on Europa. So as Europa's orbiting, it doesn't have a perfectly circular orbit, and it basically gets kind of ripped apart a little bit, heats it up, so it's got this energy source. And that's important because it turns out that on Earth, the places where we think maybe the origin of life occurred, or at least where stable ecosystems exist, is where biology is coupling into like geologic processes. You know, we're, we are the natural consequence of an active planet. And so perhaps the thing we should be looking for in the solar system is not just water. Water's everywhere, but we should be looking for activity. And Europa has is, is got a surface that's telling us it's active. So that's why I'm interested in Europa. It's, it's the most Earth-like of any of the, uh, the environments in the solar system because that ocean is right there in contact with the silicate mantle. Um, it's very possible Mars had an ocean at one point in time, but it was probably about three and a half billion years ago. Totally a compelling place to go, but in terms of maybe finding life right now somewhere that's active, I think Europa is pretty compelling in that, in that respect. But the other thing that's really interesting about it, I mentioned that the salinity seems to be probably very similar on, between Europa's ocean and our own, maybe even a little less salty on Europa. Um, but also the, uh, the, the conditions in the ocean, at least when it started, should have been very similar to the, to the starting conditions of the Earth's ocean. So we kind of think that a, you know, an anoxic ocean environment might be a, a key player in the, in the origins of life, so that's pretty exciting. But we also have things on Earth, even today, that would do pretty well in environments on Europa. It's one of the reasons that, for instance, the Galileo spacecraft went and orbited Jupiter, and at the end of its mission, they started, uh, you know, the spacecraft started degrading and started uh, becoming a little bit less stable. They weren't really sure if they'd be able to continue to steer it, so they actually took Galileo and threw it into the planet Jupiter in order to keep from contaminating Europa, especially because of these very Earth-like environments that exist not on the surface of Europa, but just below it. We've got a ton of water and a ton of, of temperatures that are actually very similar. So on the Earth, we have things like halophiles that are organisms that really love a salt-rich environment. Um, there are places in the deep sea floor where there's kind of sinkholes of extremely salty, briny ocean water. You can imagine that happening on the seafloor of Europa. We have things like thermophiles. Um, there's an entire NASA astrobiology node dedicated to deep biosphere, to organisms that are powered by water and rock reactions and by geothermal heat um, in the seafloor. So that's an environment that might exist on Europa. And finally, psychrophiles, which are um, kind of my favorite things to think about, which are ex extremophiles. You know, we call them extremophiles because for us, living at minus 10, you know, minus 10 C would be pretty uncomfortable. We'd need a huge parka, a whole bunch of, you know, we need to melt water and, and, and have a, we'd have a huge difficulty living in that in a regular environment. However, um, it's not very extreme to these organisms. These are organisms that grow and reproduce down to minus 12 C. Minus 12 C is, is a temperature that you probably get within about a kilometer of Europa's surface, or with, within two or three kilometers of Europa's surface. So that ice shell on Europa is potentially very much like the icy environments on the Earth. Not on the surface, and not on the surface of those icy environments on Earth, but inside the bulk ice and right below it where the ocean and the, and the ice are interacting. And so these cold-loving organisms are things we like to think about as we think about the limits for life outside our own planet, and that's why Europa at least is so compelling.
But what um, I'm, I'm not actually a biologist. It's why I find Europa interesting is because I'm trying to put it in, in kind of geologic or geophysical context so that we know if we've really got what we need to power a biosphere. It's not enough just to have uh, organic molecules in water. They, we see that all over the place. Comets have that. There's not probably life on comets. There's environments that are um, water-rich that don't have water-rock reactions. Those happen all over the solar system. But they're not necessarily good candidates for life. But in, in thinking about Europa's geology, there's all of this really thick ice, just like what we have in the Antarctic. And the same processes can happen in that ice and then so the ice on Europa and the ice in Antarctica. And so that's actually what I've been working on for the last little bit, is looking at these environments that are very foreign to you and me before, you know, before we get lucky and, and have the, you know, the United States Antarctic program or NASA send us to a frozen environment, but are really very, very familiar uh, for somebody who looks at Europa every day. Um, so what we've been doing is um, at Texas, we've been working um, on a couple of different things. The, the first thing that we work on, um, I joined a group that does ice penetrating radar. It's led by a guy named John, Don Blankenship whole slew of characters and and basically radar is just another frequency of electromagnetic radiation and that radar wavelength that can penetrate through ice uh, historically um, the re the way this was kind of discovered was actually um, kind of sad was that we kept losing aircraft on Greenland and in the Antarctic because they just kind of run straight into the ice because they were using radar um, as as elevation to to track their elevation above the ground and the radar data the radar that they were using was actually penetrating the ice so you'd get you'd get a, a plane you know a, a military plane running straight into the side of, of a giant chunk of ice because it really couldn't see it so it's kind of a sad way to figure this out but what it does give us is it's kind of like taking an x-ray of the ice so if you imagine what you see in an x-ray you get to see the inside of your bone column you get to see all the um, you know all the little fractures or the little um, pockets and things that are inside inside your, your bone structure well the ice penetrating radar works kind of the same way for the ice so we basically kind of get to take an x-ray of ice it's been done for decades now on the earth and even started to be done on Mars uh, the motion, Martian polar environments have been looked at this way and what it gives us a chance to do is to actually see through that ice on the earth it tells us a lot about climate we can actually trace the climate history back uh, using um, lineations and things in the in the ice um, but on Europa what it's going to give us the chance to do is go looking for water so basically what happens is the radar wavelength penetrates through the ice as long as it's relatively cold and so it'll just kind of bang off the bottom so when there's ice like on the earth when there's ice in contact with rock you see the reflection off the geology underneath it gives us a chance to study the geology of Antarctica without being able to see the rocks well, in an environment where you have water at the base, like a big floating chunk of ice, so these ice shelves I was mentioning that cover part of the Antarctic coastline, um, these are huge, you know, 100 meters or, or kilometers thick of ice, and we can actually see right through it. And the second that the radar waves hit water, they basically are, are solidly reflected because this water is very conductive. And so what we can see is we can actually locate water water below the surface when we can't see it. So we've actually been able to do things like detect the lake uh, at subglacial Lake Vostok, which I'm sure you've probably heard about. So the largest lake in Antarctica, and it's buried under three and a half kilometers of ice. And the way that we're really able to validate 
that that was a lake was not only by the surface. The surface got really, really flat all of a sudden in the middle, in the middle of the continent, but also by the fact that the radar just reflects, you know, just kind of bangs right off the top of the lake. So we actually have a detection of that water body using this radar. So what we're hoping to do is be able to take things like this ice-penetrating radar and go to Europa and look for subsurface liquid water bodies. So not just the ice ocean interface, but we think that there are many, many ways in which, and partially from learning things about, about the way that ice and thick ice works on, on the Earth, is we think that there are water environments inside the ice shell, kind of a uh, an ice water sandwich where you get pockets or lakes of water, probably get diffuse water systems in the ridges on Europa or, or up near the surface. And so we can actually go looking for that, really confirm where there's water and where there could be life even right now uh, inside the ice shell even on Europa. So it's a really exciting technology. So we've been uh, using that to, to try to study the chemistry, thermal and structural environments in the ice. So that's been a, been a really great thing because it allows you to see it allows you to see fractures in the ice. It allows you to see water bodies. It allows you to see kind of salt ridge or aerosol ridge or different composition in the ice, and it um, allows you to understand how that ice formed and how it's evolving. We can't. We just can't wait to take that technology that we're developing in our backyard and take that to Europa and, and see what we can do with it. So that's all been planned for this this upcoming mission. Um, and I encourage anyone who's interested in missions to Europa to go to um, a website that we've actually got that's just talking about Europa science and uh, talking about future exploration of Europa. It's europa.seti.org. Um, and that is a website called Destination Europa. And it's basically a resource for the public and for the planetary science community to learn about Europa, to unify, to talk about what we should be doing with a mission. And then even more importantly, it's got some resources there in case you uh, want to help us try to get a mission to Europa, uh, learn how to work with your congressman, learn how to write and who to write at the White House and in the Office of Management and Budget. So it's something that's really near and dear to my heart. So europa.seti.org, help us get Europa Clipper, which is this mission I've been talking about that has this ice-penetrating radar. We're ready to go. We're submitting instrument concepts right now, what we really need is to get started. But thinking really long range, everyone's been excited about Europa, as I mentioned, because of this ocean. So we're going to go and we're going to look at the ice shell, we're going to use the Europa Clipper mission, and we'll understand where there's water inside that ice and where things might live. But um, what we've also been doing to try to understand ice-ocean interactions and those frozen environments on the Earth is to take it and kind of do an experiment we wish we could do on Europa. And so that's the, the I sent a picture out, so um, I think they might show it, and that's actually a picture of some field work that we did last year, and we've got two more uh, field seasons. Um, so what this picture is, is a picture of our field team with a, a little, you can call her a submarine on a string if you want. It's a remote-operated vehicle, and it, um, what we did is to take, take about a four-foot-long um, remote-operated vehicle. Her name is Skinny. Um, so she's the submersible and she's really narrow and thin. So if you've ever seen a poster tube, she's about the size of a poster tube. It's about 10 centimeters around or 10 centimeters across. You can carry it out in the field yourself, pretty light. And she's on a very long string. And so what you can see in that picture is us holding skinny. That's our field team from this year on December 23rd of, of 2012. What we did was to lower her down vertically through 52 meters of ice in the McMurdo ice shelf and then go swimming around underneath the ice shelf to look up at the ice. 
and look at the topography under the ice shell, to look at how the ocean is affecting uh, the ice environments, to look for things that are living in the ice, to understand the current environment, to understand ice processes like accretion and ablation. Um, and we were really lucky to actually see, we saw some um, little polycate worms actually living in the ice. They're little segmented kind of orange bodies. We saw some fish that are actually evolved to swim upside down. These have been seen before. They've never really been, been imaged at the bottom of ice shelves. It's only been done a few times. So we get some great images of this of these fish that actually are there. They're, they've evolved to kind of swim upside down, so they have this flat stomach, and they attach themselves to the bottom of the ice shelf. And, and uh, every, all the other fish we see, the fish that are in the main ocean water, um, who get under the ice shelf on accident, they're not, they don't really want to be there. Um, they're all swimming right side up, the way you'd expect a fish, so dorsal fin up, and this little guy is swimming dorsal fin down along the, the ice ocean interface and kind of attaching himself upside down to the ice shelf. So it was a really incredible experience, but what we're really trying to do is, um, is understand the process that happen when oceans and ice interact, and if that has a role to play in biology. There are some very recent discoveries of a community of anemones and larger, much larger polycate worms than the ones that we saw, and some other really specially adapted animals that no one's ever seen before, living attached to the Ross Ice Shelf, not far from where we were, um, anemones that actually burrow into the ice. So anemones are known for you know, being in coastal environments or burrowing in coral reefs or something like that. These guys are actually burrowing into the ice shelf and hanging out of the ice shelf and filter feeding or, or doing their business there, and then polycate worms kind of, you know, grazing on the ice, just an incredible environment that was never really seen before until, uh, until just two years ago. So we're really involved in, in doing some, uh, some submersible exploration to really understand these new communities, this new environment, this new type of habitat that is both similar and dissimilar, but probably very, you know, a, an environment you could imagine existing on places like Europa. And it's so new to both the Earth and Europa that, that it gives us a chance to kind of study them both at the same time. So. It feels like a like a really kind of an, a neat expedition to be doing. Some of the some of the first work were really going under ice shelves and and exploring under there and trying to understand the physical processes and the biological processes that are driving um, icy frozen environments. What lives there and how it lives there and and for how long. So lots of questions that can be answered and and very Europa-like environments and very Europa-like problems. But uh, it's a lot closer to just you know hitch a plane and and uh, bring, your favorite, bring your favorite parka and head down to the ice. So um, that's pretty much what I had to, had to share. Um, but I, you know, I, I hope that it's been exciting for you guys to, to think about. I, I like uh, trying to think about new, new directions for research and new directions that we can think about for the origins of life and for, this, for the evolution of life on, on our planet and beyond. And these, these problems are very, very similar. The chemistries are similar. A lot of the dynamics are similar. And I, I think that by studying all of these environments, by studying Mars, by studying Europa, by studying exoplanets, we're also studying our own, you know, kind of our own origins and our own our own experience. So I'm I'm excited to be a part of it, and I'm super glad that you guys asked me to talk today, and I uh, appreciate it. So, yeah, thanks a lot. That was excellent, Brittany. I think we all enjoyed that a lot. So actually, I've got a question to start things off. You focused a lot on you know all the amazing similarities there are between Antarctica and Europa and all the things we can learn. Are there any like really key differences that we can identify given that we don't know a lot about Europa? Um, I mean, what are maybe just some of the, the major things that we know are uh, like going to be drastically different when we get to the European environments? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the big thing that we're, you know, we know we've got all this ocean water there and we, we know it's interact or it's possible for it to interact with the seafloor, but one of the big unknowns is we don't really know exactly how thick the ice shelf is. Geologic evidence pretty much suggests it's between 15 and 30 kilometers thick. Almost certainly not, not thinner than that. It might have been thinner at some point in time, but, but it's probably pretty thick ice. So if you imagine, actually, part of, the, part of the habitability of Earth is tied to the atmosphere. And it's not necessarily, you know, th people think about, oh, you need air to breathe. So if you don't have air to breathe, it doesn't really work. But really what that's doing is it's providing a source of, like, oxidation, right? You're, you're getting oxidants for your system, so you're, you're able to create b the basic chemistry of biology using oxidants and, and reductants. And so on Europa, you know, the reductants, the reduced environment is the seafloor potentially, and the the surface of Europa is actually bathed in radiation that that we think you know, that we can see produces things like peroxides, that is an oxidant. What we don't really know is how fast it's overturning. Because if you don't have it overturning fast enough, you could either completely reduce the ocean or you could, you, know, you could acidify the ocean, you could have runaway chemical reactions that might make it totally inhabitable, or it might be really, really stable over a long period of time as the ice shell recycles. And so that's been a big question is, is Europa, we know it's active in recent time, but we don't know, you know how does that work. And the other thing is we really don't know if the seafloor is active. The, the tidal heating argument, you know, you get heat from the tides and it probably keeps the ice shell active and, and may, may deposit energy into the interior, but it's a big function of how much the water is sloshing around and how thick the ice shell is. So that's a big question, is just how active is the interior of Europa, or is it at all? Certainly it probably was at one point in time. Europa still has radiogenic heating left over from when it formed. Um, the same as the Earth does, but it's much, much smaller than the Earth. So, whereas the Earth is still powered by radiogenic nuclide decay in its core and also by um, leftover gravitational potential energy from, from just accreting itself, Europa probably doesn't have that, that gravitational energy left over. Um, so, that activity is, is a little bit more tenuous. So, that's an example of something that we don't know and we won't really know. We're trying to think about ways that we can test the state of the ocean and the state of the seafloor using surface geology or using um, magnetic fields or using, um, using what we know about the system. But, but that's something that, we, that is, I think, an important difference. Another one is actually that the, the water on Europa is you know, 100, 100 to 150 kilometers thick. So that's really, really deep. You know, the, the deepest ocean or deepest water on Earth is about five kilometers thick. So you've got, that's a significant the gravity helps you. So the pressure on Europa's seafloor, because it's so much smaller, is, is actually, you know, maybe not that much different than the pressure, maybe, maybe a factor, factor of somewhere between 2 to 10, but, but it's, it's not a huge, huge difference, but it would definitely change what might be chemically stable at the seafloor, what reactions might take place, and what could evolve there under a higher pressure environment. So how that works in an environment like that, we don't know. Great, thank you. Anyone else have any questions for Brittany? You were mentioning um, the radar that they use to penetrate the ice. I have a couple questions. Number one, how deep can it penetrate? If we're talking about like a 50-kilometer ice shell, does that does, do you lose resolution at those depths? And two, how does it change with different types of ice? Like I know uh, sea ice kind of has like a scaffolding property to it with maybe like water inside of it and versus pure ice or versus maybe ice that's on Europa. 
and our CO2 ice on Mars? Like, how does it change its yeah, being, so, I guess? Oh, yeah. That's a really good question. So the, the answer to the first question is, well, actually, the question, the answer to both of those questions is it really depends on temperature, how deep you go. On Earth, even though the, in the ice, you know, this ice would be considered warm compared to Europa, for instance, at least the surface of Europa. Um, and on Earth, we're getting through five kilometers of ice, which is, you know, the thickest ice on Earth with no problem. You know, we get a sharp reflection off the bottom. So imagining twice that depth is, is not hard to imagine. And it really depends on how much attenuation you have between the surface and the interior. It's just kind of like, it's like looking, you know, looking through fog versus looking through, uh, looking through you know, a clear open atmosphere. Um, it really depends on what's in between you and the ice ocean interface, for instance. The other thing is, is that if there's a water pocket up in the surface, we're going to reflect off the top of the water pocket. And we won't see anything below it. So if there's water or, or stuff just crisscrossing the, the subsurface of Europa, we won't necessarily see the ocean interaction. There's other ways to figure out how thick the ice shell is. The geodynamics really does tell you a lot about that and having really good topography and really good data from better cameras and, and the radar will really help us with that. But there are places on Europa we think are pretty cold and pretty inactive. So those actually may be cold windows that kind of shoot, not shoot the radar, but allow the radar to go really, really deep. So there's almost certainly going to be places on Europa where we get a kilometer or two kilometers or three kilometers into the, into the subsurface and then we run into a, a lake or a water channel or, or something like that 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 totally attenuates the signal, or uh, that totally reflects the signal. But there's going to be other environments that don't have that, where we might actually see all the way through to the ice-ocean interface. If it's 50 kilometers thick, probably won't see that. But we're pretty convinced that 10 kilometers is pretty doable, that 15 might be, and it really just depends on that, on that temperature. It t depends a little bit on the composition, but that's a really complicated thing to understand is, is how the composition and the structure of the ice gets into play. And um, the ice structure itself gives you things that can reflect. So like if there's pockets of refrozen water that's a little saltier than the rest of the ice, you might see it as kind of a, a layer that was a little more absorptive, or you might get reflections off of transitions between one ice face and another ice face. So on Earth, we... Um, aerosols that are compressed into the ice. So snow rains out on the surface, or so snow snows down on the surface, and then it traps little aerosol pockets, and then another layer the next year of snow lays on top of it, and another layer. And so what, in time, that ice thickens, so the, the snow compresses down and becomes really solid ice with the weight of the snow on top of it. And the radar can actually, it goes through the ice, but it can actually, you'll get a few reflections or you get different uh, properties um, through and so we can actually track back those those lines of aerosols, which is how we do climate reconstruction. So those are examples of things we might see in there. We won't see below any water. So the first water you hit, you won't see below it. But if you see water in the first kilometer or three kilometers of your open surface, that is exciting. It's not necessarily the ocean. You know, getting getting long tracks that cross the globe and look look everywhere is going to be really important. There's all kinds of different ways that this could work um, in that in that icy environment. One of the things that's actually really interesting is that on Europe, a process called marine ice accretion is basically what happens. That's why we're so interested in taking submersibles and looking at the underside of ice shelves is because as you, the pressure and temperature changes with depth in an ice shell, so you get really deep parts and really shallow parts, that 
those melting and, and melting processes can actually also cause accretion, where cold, fresh water that melts off the ice shelf um, runs uphill and then freezes, um, starts freezing seawater. Not in the same way that sea ice. So sea ice, when it freezes, it, it has, like you mentioned, it has big pockets of brine. It, it's kind of flash frozen. It's a really high thermal gradient environment. And in, underneath these ice shells, it's a low thermal gradient environment. So those, that ice freezes fairly slowly, does a lot of impurity rejection, but not 100%. And so what it does is it ends up building these plates and big giant chunks of a different type of ice onto the bottom of the ice shelf. What's cool about that is it can trap biology, it can trap some sea, um, some of the you know some of the salts or something from the water, and you might actually have a record of that inside that ice. That's why we're really interested in what we can see. So, um, however, the radar in many cases, when you have a chemistry or temperature, because that um, marine ice can be warmer than the rest of the ice shelf, so sometimes you can't actually see through it. So it's possible that we'll get a reflection off the top of the marine layer who never actually see the ice ocean interface with some of this process is going on. So that's why, you know, going to places where this is happening on the earth is absolutely paramount to understanding when, when we take a radar to the most complicated environment I can think of, which is Europa. So, you know, the earth's glaciers are incredibly, incredibly flat, even compared to Europa. Europa is covered in ridges and craziness and probably has water going, you know, this way and that way and up and down and sideways through the ice shelf. So, and that's going to be a really complicated environment. So we're trying to challenge ourselves here on the Earth to try to understand exactly those questions so we know what we're looking at when we get there. Hey, Brittany, thank you again for joining us. It was really, really an interesting uh, presentation, and it's really core was the pun intended to the, <laughs> to the philosophy of Earth and space exploration. Um, so, so my question uh, is regards to the attractiveness of Europa as a biological harbor in the sense that the phase diagram of water shows and suggests that the ocean water is indeed in contact with a silicate mantle, and thus you could, there's strong reasons to think that water rock reactions would be happening there. But where we, where life would potentially be existing, I think would be on the lower shelf of the ice. So can the material that's forming at 100 kilometers depth of the ocean transport itself all the way up to the, to the ocean surface, quote unquote, or? Yeah, so, well, so that's a really interesting question, and we're working on this problem a lot at Texas, and we'll be working a lot at Georgia Tech, um, and hopefully with collaborators in this NAI proposal we were talking about, and so we've been doing some ocean transport modeling that, that suggests that Europa is fairly well mixed. Uh, in certain areas and not well mixed in others, which is very similar actually to the Earth. In the Earth you get really mixed water near the equator and then you get really, really stable stratified water near the poles and those happen for different reasons. Um, under ice shelves it's a very complicated environment where the melting, you've got warm water coming on from, from you know, the circumpolar current and then you've got cold water that's being melted off the bottom of the ice shelf coming out of a different layer. So there's a lot of really interesting um, things to understand about boundary layer processes and ocean processes just by studying the Earth. But the modeling that we've been doing, uh, Krista Soderlund um, has been doing, um, so we've been collaborating on that, it seems to suggest that there's a really good case for mixing near the low latitudes, near the equator. Um, and what's exciting about that is that that's where we see all this activity on Europa. We don't see it really very much near the poles. The uh, active new stuff seems to be concentrated near the equator. And um, 
Other models don't really explain why that might be. It looks like perhaps there's more heat transfer from the ocean that way. How the it, whether ocean stuff goes up um, into the surface, that is really a big question. And I think this marine ice problem we were just describing is a big part of that because it's a, a buoyancy density driven system. Um, so if we've got a mechanism like melting a lake out, freezes out, and you create a, a denser water pocket and a denser water pocket or a denser ice pocket and a denser ice pocket, then maybe it's pulling, you know, it's pulling material down to the ocean and exchanging that, right? So material going down doesn't seem a huge Glacial problem. subduction. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, so, I mean, those are, I mean, and by the way, I mean, that's not, not like super mainstream at all. It's just kind of ideas that were thrown around is to try to understand what are the natural consequences of the processes that are going to happen as the ice interacts with the ocean. And this marine process has been not a major focus of a lot of Europa research. And partially it's because uh, most people who study Europa are trained as geologists or geophysicists, but they're trained on solid earth planets. And they're not glaciologists, so they don't think about, um, or they're not aware of a lot of these environments, or they think about sea ice, um, but they're not really aware of what they're, what, what they're looking at. So that's actually why I went to Texas, was to work with a group that really does this, that are, have a glaciology background and have been looking for ice a decade, for decades um, in, in these European-ish environments. So like I mentioned, the surfaces aren't very alike, but the, but the deeper processes might be. So we're trying really hard to understand that. And I, th I think we're getting a handle on that. I think some of our work suggests that there might be kind of a conveyor belt that's, that's related to uh, ice-ocean interaction and chaos terrain formation all in this kind of active area of the surface. So we'll see. That's, you know, that's, um, that's what we're trying to look at. It's the whole process of science. We're in, the middle of, we're in the middle of that. We'd really like to have some confirmation that some of these things are going on. You know? It's one of the reasons why the ice penetrating radar is so important is because we can actually go look at these processes. You can see structural changes in the ice if it's deforming, going up or going down, or if there's water pockets or there's whatever. And that's all a consequence of that activity and exactly the question you've asked, which is, you know, whether is there ocean water going up? Is there, uh, you know, is there surface material going down? So I think that's, that's the next decade of Europa research is to make that a, a real problem that's dealt with in a very, very detailed manner. Instead of right now, I mean, a lot of the stuff we do is kind of, you know, order one or very tidally based or very, um, and it's really good work. It's none of it's bad work at all. It's, it's just, I think it's time for an update on how we think about these problems. And some of it's going to work and some of it's not. So I'd say stay tuned. <laughs> cool. Thank you, Brittany. I guess I have another question regarding the uh, status of the Europa Clipper. Oh, yeah. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah. So Europa Clipper is kind of a cool mission. Um, for the last two decades, the number one priority of planetary scientists has been to go back to Europa. Um, and for various reasons, political and otherwise, we haven't done it. We've got a really great concept that basically does all this massive science in a really new, interesting way. So generally speaking, you have kind of two types of spacecraft. You go, you fly by the target, or you go into orbit around it. And uh, the Galileo spacecraft was in orbit around Jupiter. So Voyager was a flyby. It flew by, took a look at the satellites, took a look at Jupiter, and kept going, went to Saturn, and kept going out into the... You know, it's it's still going right. It's out of our out of our solar system now. The Galileo orbiter was orbiting Jupiter, and so it would make flybys of Europa every time. What's the the um, original conception for the next Europa mission was to put an 
an orbiter around Europa and just watch the surface go up and down and get all this data. Well, it turns out that when you do that, you're in this crazy radiation environment. You're baking your spacecraft, data limited because your orbits are very short. You can't radio all the data back. And for really data hungry and things like spectrometers and radars, which are absolutely paramount to have, it was very difficult to do an orbiter, which is what made it very expensive. So what we did is we took a very cool new approach to doing orbital strategy, and it was what we're calling kind of networked flybys. So basically what the Europa Clipper does is it, it is an orbit around Jupiter, but it comes in and instead of, you know, a normal, normal, uh, a normal flyby type orbit, you'd be an orbit around the primary and you just slowly change your angle of inclination. You have, almost always you're tracking back to the same point on the surface. Um, so what we're doing here instead is this kind of new way of doing the orbit, which is you come in at one angle and you do a burn actually as you take off. So you come in super close to the planet and you burn and head off the other direction. So we do what we're calling crank over the top orbits. And what it lets us do is lay down a grid of flybys instead of like, you know, instead of like a fan of, you know, of very closely spaced X's where we don't see most of the surface, we're getting a whole grid across the entire surface of Europa. And so we're going to get globally distributed regional science done really, really well. And so that, that spacecraft has a spectrometer, has cameras, has ice penetrating radar, has an, an ion and neutral mass spectrometer and a magnetometer. And so these are all instruments that can do some of this really exciting science and work together to figure out all these open questions about Europa. So the status is that that mission is ready to go. It costs half or le actually less than half of the previous mission's estimated cost. It's been ready to go. It's studied. We're just waiting to get the go-ahead. Congress is actually really behind it. In the last two, two budgets, Congress has added money back in to try to do this development. Unfortunately, planetary science does not appear to be a priority of this administration. It's kind of a bummer. They, their opinion is planetary science has had a good run and that it's time for it to take a back seat for a while. Um, I don't think, you know, that's kind of like taking your, your A-plus student and sitting them in the back or, or, or giving them extra busy work because you want the other guys to have, you know, to have a better shot. I think everyone should have a shot of doing, doing their work. And so, unfortunately, we're fighting a lot of political battles now to try to get this mission started. But there is money this year, and so we're just literally sending in proposals for kind of a pre-phase like a pre-mission study of instrument concepts for this spacecraft in the hopes that in the next budget from the president, we might get a new start. We basically need the president or Congress to make it a line item to say, this is a priority for our national interests, which it really is. I mean, planetary science in the United States, it's what we do. We're amazing at it. NASA's incredible at it. No country spends more on it, and it's a tiny amount of the money that we spend on anything else. NASA planetary science is less than half a percent of funding in, in the U.S. I mean, it's tiny. It sounds like a lot of money to you and me. You know, I don't have a few hundred thousand or, a few, you know, a few hundred million dollars, but, but it's a tiny amount of what we spend on all kinds of other things. So, I mean, NASA's entire budget, for instance, costs less than air conditioning, you know, troops in, in Afghanistan, which really isn't, we need both of those things. I'm not saying we should turn off the air conditioners in Afghanistan, but it, it is helpful to have that little bit of perspective. So Europa is kind of hanging in the middle, trying to, trying to keep that mission alive and, and try to 
try to give it a nudge. So, I mean, that's why I mentioned the, the website that's, that's up is for those people who are really interested in Europa, you know, even if you don't want to do any, any talking to your representatives, but it's an important time right now uh, to be talking to our elected officials about what national priorities should be. I mean, there's a reason kids go to school, and it's not because I'm really looking forward to, you know, I, I went to school and was inspired to, to, you know, to think and to get good grades, and it didn't have anything to do with whether I wanted to be, a, you know, a bank manager someday or whatever. And I don't think that that's, none of that, you know, that's clearly an important job too, but I think there's an inspiration factor and, uh, and this kind of, I don't know, greater human consciousness that, that is something that NASA alone can really accomplish. And I, I hope that we'll choose to make that kind of a, an investment in, in ourselves, in our search for, for answers, and in, you know, in, in the most technically gifted uh, civilization in the world. It's, it's really, it would be a real shame to not be able to answer these questions. Well, so, I think those are uh, very inspiring words to end on. And <laughs> does anyone else have any final questions? So if not, Brittany, thanks once again. Uh, it's been a pleasure. We all uh, learned a lot, and it was um, very enjoyable. So uh, listeners, please uh, tune in again to next month. Thanks again. Thanks so much, guys. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives. Thank you.